All right, so we're in the final week of our series uh, on the book of Revelation. And, you know, I mentioned every week three things that you have to remember about Revelation for it to make sense. One, you have to remember it's a letter. It's a letter that was written to a particular group of people at a particular time going through a particular set of circumstances. A group, in this case, that lived in what is now modern-day Turkey, seven churches. And they, this was a vision that Jesus gave to John, and John wrote in a letter and gave to these churches. And the reason that's important, as we said every week, is so that it keeps us from interpreting Revelation in a way that makes sense in the 21st century, but wouldn't make sense in the first century, that God's word is timeless, and so it has to be relevant in every, in every generation. God has to be able to speak through that. And so that's the first thing. Second thing is remember that you cannot read Revelation and think that you're reading it chronologically, because if you do that, you'll be confused. It's a series of windows, four actually, four windows that look at the same reality through a different lens. And so when you read through Revelation, it's not so much what's happening next, it's what does John see next. And then the fourth thing is that it's apocalyptic literature, which means that it's filled with all this weird imagery, weird symbolism, all of this stuff, because it's not just trying to communicate something to us so that we, our minds can be impacted, but so that our hearts can be impacted, so that our spirits can be impacted. And when we are going through really, really difficult times, we don't just need to know something, we need to feel something. We don't just need to know that God is in control, we need to feel that God is in control, and that's what apocalyptic literature does. Now, last week, we talked about this vision that John has of Babylon and how Babylon represents cultural influence that does not reflect God's design. Babylon represents the lure to find fulfillment and pleasure and happiness and joy and purpose and life in things other than God. And the call of God to his people, as we talked about last week, is to come out. Come out of Babylon. It's a call to live your best life. It's a call to live the kind of life that God created you to live. It's a call to live this countercultural kingdom life. And then the vision ends with this invitation to come to a party that never ends, to an invitation to come to this wedding feast that God has prepared for us, this invitation to gather around the table, experience joy and fellowship and life and purpose and meaning that's beyond our wildest imagination. Now, we just kind of touched on that last week, and I want to talk a little bit more about that this week because meals play a huge role in God's story. Like as you read through God's story in scripture, meals play a huge role in that story because throughout scripture, when things seem darkest for the people of God, when people have lost hope, when they're going through difficult times, when they're struggling with stuff, all of that, that uh, God oftentimes invites them to participate in this meal. And he usually invites them to participate right before he shows off, right before he does something that is absolutely unbelievable. He invites them to the table. And you see this throughout scripture. When the Israelites were suffering under Egyptian slavery and Pharaoh kept promising to set them free, set them free, but he never does that. Instead, he just keeps abusing them. He keeps oppressing them, all of that. God invited the people of God to a meal, the Passover. And he used the meal to remind them of what he was about to do. And immediately after the meal, 
God shows off. Immediately after the meal, God sets them free. Immediately after the meal, God does this miraculous work in their lives. Then when Jesus is about to go to the cross and suffer this brutal death that looks like it's the end, uh, the story is over, this kingdom that he's been talking about really uh, is not going to happen, he invites his disciples to a meal. And at the meal, he takes two elements of the Passover meal, the bread and the cup, and he invests new meaning. And he says, the bread is my body and the cup is my blood. And then immediately after the meal, he does this amazing thing where he goes to the cross, he pays for our sins, and then he rises from the dead. And he sets us free from a different kind of bondage. You see this again throughout scripture. God The people of God are like in difficult times. God invites them to a meal. And right after the meal, then God just kind of shows off and does his thing. When David was running from his enemies who wanted to kill him, and it looked like all hope was gone. Look at what David wrote. This is like a familiar, one of the most familiar Psalms. And oftentimes we miss one of the main points in it. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though it looks hopeless, it looks bad, Things are not good. It feels like the world is closing in. And some of you are feeling that right now with kind of what's going on in the world. Just feels like things are closing in. David says, I will fear fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Look at verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Like that is kind of the message that runs through all of scripture is that when we are surrounded, when we are feeling like life is closing in, when things are getting hard, that God prepares. He invites us to a meal. He invites us to the table. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. No matter what's going on, no matter what we're facing, no matter how hopeless it seems, God invites us to a table where we can find peace in the presence of our enemies, where we can find comfort in the presence of our enemies, where we can find hope in the presence of our enemies, where we can find joy in the presence of our enemies, where we can experience love in the presence of our enemies, where we can dwell with God even in the presence of our enemies. And then you come to the book of Revelation. So you have all of these references to meals And then you get to the book of Revelation, and it starts. We have this book that's written to this group of persecuted Christians who are going through all of these difficult times. And the book basically starts, we talked about this in first week, the first week, the book basically starts with an invitation to a meal. Look at verse 20. Here I am, chapter 3. Here I am, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. And he with me. And then you get to the end of the book. And right before God shows off in the biggest way, right before God does everything to kind of make this world whole, you see this invitation, this invitation to come to a meal, to come to a wedding feast. And of course, 
as you step back and look at all of these meals that God invites the people of God to throughout all of the the story, the narrative of scripture, you come to realize something. As you start looking at it through the lens of the gospel, you realize that Jesus is not just inviting us to the meal. Jesus is the meal. Like Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the cup. And when you're in the presence of your enemies, when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling like there's no hope, when you're feeling like everything is falling apart, Jesus is the one where you can find peace and comfort and joy and hope and life. Now we get to Revelation 20. And John sees the vision of Satan, the dragon, falling. Dragon's defeat, Satan's defeat. And this is what it says in Revelation 20, verse 1 and 2. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan. Like He doesn't want us to be unclear at all, like this imagery. Don't get lost, he's saying. Don't get lost. I'm talking about the devil. I'm talking about Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. Okay, we need to talk about the thousand years. Like we need to talk about the millennium, which is oftentimes referred to. Because if you've hung around the church for any length of time, you know that Revelation 20 and the thousand years and the binding of Satan and all of that has been interpreted in a lot of different ways. Some have interpreted it this way. Jesus coming back. When he does, Satan will be defeated. He'll be bound for a literal thousand-year period, and then after the thousand years, everyone who is in Christ will go to heaven and spend eternity with him. That's one. Others have interpreted it another way, that sometime in the future, Satan is going to be defeated. Uh, He's going to be bound for a thousand years, and then after the thousand years, Jesus is going to come back, and people are going to go with Christ to heaven, and they'll spend eternity with God. So, you know, those two interpretations basically just have to do with when Jesus is coming back. For some, it's like, okay, Jesus coming back before this thousand years, pre-millennial. He's coming back before the thousand years, and then the thousand years will happen, and then everybody will go and spend eternity with Jesus. Or Jesus is coming back after this thousand years, this literal thousand years, post-thousand years, post-millennial, and then everyone will go and spend eternity with Jesus forever. But you have to remember, in Revelation, right, we've talked about this every week, numbers have meaning. Like, numbers are symbolic. Numbers, they mean something. And a thousand years here probably doesn't mean actually a literal thousand years. It's a way of talking about a really long period of time. And also remember, like I said at the beginning of the message, we've said every week, Revelation is a letter. It's written to a specific group of people, at a specific time, going through a specific set of circumstances. So this part of the vision has to be relevant to those who were hearing it in 96 AD, to those who were hearing it for the first time, the original audience. And the message that Satan has not been defeated yet, that Satan is still large and in charge, that Satan is is not bound, that he has not been defeated, but one day out there in the future, he will be defeated probably would not have been much of a message of hope to these persecuted Christians who are like wondering, where is God in all of this? Plus, that message 
goes against the whole message of the New Testament. Like the whole message of the New Testament, the whole message of the gospel is that Satan has already been defeated. The whole message of the New Testament is that Satan has already been bound, that he was defeated by the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he has already lost, that he is a defeated foe. Now, that doesn't mean, yeah, you can clap for that, right? That's a... Now, that doesn't mean that Satan is not active, right? It doesn't mean the enemy's not active. Satan's like a, in some sense, he's like a wild dog that has been chained up. Like he will try to destroy everything within his reach, but his reach has been limited. His territory has been limited. His power has been limited. He's been put in chains. He's been defeated. He's been bound. And And as you look at what's happened over the last 2,000 years, this is what we sometimes forget. As you look at what's happened over the last 2,000 years, the proof is in the pudding. Like You can see where Satan is already a defeated foe. Think about this. Think about this. Over the last 2,000 years, those who claim Christ as Savior and Lord has grown from 12 guys in a, on a little dead-end street in some room somewhere in the middle of Palestine, it has grown from that to 2.38 billion people who are not centered in any geographic place, right? Any geographic location. Like Christianity, like we, this is what we forget, is that we tend to think what's going on right around us is what's going on everywhere in the world. And we interpret what God's doing by like just our little world that we're experiencing. And so, you know, we look at the fact that, you know, uh, Christianity and, and the church is not doing so awesome in the global north and church isn't growing the same way and there's a rise of the nuns and all of that kind of stuff. Like we look at that, and it's like, woe is us, man, we're losing, this is terrible, all of that. But the reality is that Christianity isn't shrinking. Christianity is doing what it's always done. Christianity is just shifting. Like it's shifting to Africa. It's shifting to Latin America. It's shifting to Asia. Gospel movements are exploding in the Middle East in unprecedented numbers. And every place that the gospel takes a foothold, folks, Satan is bound. Like every place where the gospel takes a foothold, Satan is bound. Every time the gospel is shared, every time you share the gospel, Every time you talk to someone else about the fact that this God loves them so much he'd rather die for them than live separate, every time the gospel is shared, Satan is bound. Every time someone demonstrates love for their their neighbor, even the neighbor they don't like, even the neighbor they don't understand, even the neighbor that they can't quite stand to be, but they still show love to them. Every time someone shows love to their neighbor, Satan is bound. Every time someone experiences God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's restoration, God's healing, God's power, Satan is bound. Satan is bound. Every time someone goes against the momentum of the culture and the temptation of the enemy, and lives out this countercultural kingdom life, this countercultural kingdom lifestyle, Satan is bound. The thousand years of revelation, this millennium, 
isn't some time out in the future when God's going to defeat Satan. Satan has already been defeated. He's been defeated by the cross. He's been defeated by the resurrection. The thousand years of revelation is the entire time between Christ's first coming when he came and died on the cross and rose from the dead and when he will come again and establish the kingdom in all of its fullness, that is the binding of Satan. That is this thousand years of revelation. That is the millennium that the John the Revelator is talking about. Now, the way I grew up, and maybe the way that some of you grew up as well, if you grew up in some kind of church, was this idea that when Jesus comes back, all the Christians are gonna get out of here. Like, all the Christians are gonna leave and uh, go to heaven, and then God's just gonna wipe everything out. Like, it's just so awful, it's so broken, it's so terrible, it's just like, can't, you know, not even God can fix it. And so everybody's just gonna get out, and, um, and then God's just gonna wipe it all out. But the imagery of Revelation, actually, and really the message throughout Scripture, but certainly the image of Revelation it's not so much us leaving earth and going to heaven. It's much more the imagery of heaven coming down to earth. Look at Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw, this is again this fourth window. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem, that's the member we talked about last week. That's the kingdom of God he's talking about there. So the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe, oh, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything. Can I get an amen for that? I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and these words are true. In week two, we talked about how over and over again in scripture, uh, it describes this thin veil that kind of separates heaven from earth. And it reminds us that heaven is not just something that is out there in the future, that heaven is not just something that you experience when you die, that heaven is a present reality, that heaven is all around us, that heaven has come. That was Jesus' prayer, that God's will would be done and his kingdom come to earth just as it is in heaven, that heaven is all around us. It's just that in the midst of this broken world, like we can't see it, right? In all of its fullness, the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of, of this world, the sinful world, keeps us from really seeing heaven in all of its fullness. But then you get to Revelation 21, and you see how, you see this image of how one day when Christ returns, this veil that separates heaven from earth is going to be torn away, and heaven and earth are going to become one, like a husband and a wife, like a groom and his bride on their wedding day that heaven and earth are going to become one. 
And the message of Revelation is not that we get taken out of this broken world. The message of Revelation is that this broken world gets redeemed. The message of Revelation is that this broken world gets restored. It's like this cosmic reunion. And the dead in Christ, you know, all of those who have gone on before us, uh, my dad, my mom, my brother, Gil, folks that are important to you, and you're like all the folks that are in Christ who have gone on before you, that all of them, they've been waiting for the Lord's return, waiting for the Lord's return with the Lord, but waiting for the Lord's return. All of them are going to be raised to life, and everyone who is in Christ either raised to life or living at the time that Jesus returns, they, they get these incredible resurrected bodies that aren't wasting away like my body is wasting away and and if you're out there going well rod speaking about bodies just speak for yourself let me just remind you that you hit your physical prime this is just science folks you hit your physical prime somewhere between 25 and 30 after that it is all downhill from there right Welcome to Fairfax Church, where we preach the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's all downhill from there. So maybe your body, maybe you're on this side of like 25, and he's like, you're younger than that, going, oh, you're wasting away body. Your time is coming, okay? Let me just tell you, like, your body, like, it won't be long. And the earth, not just our bodies, not just we're going to get these new bodies, like, it's not going to be this just these ethereal, spiritual, floating around kinds of spirits. No, no, no. We get new bodies. That's the message of Scripture. We get these new resurrected bodies. And then the earth is made new. It's restored. All that is broken is made whole. And that's hard, I think, for some people, even some Christians, to like get their minds around because they look at this broken, sinful world and they just go, this, it's too broken. Like, it's too broken. It's just like not even God can fix this. Not even God can redeem this. Not even God can restore this. I mean, that's why he just has to blow it up. He just has to destroy it. But the clear and compelling message of the Bible is that God can redeem anything. The clear and compelling message of the Bible is that God can restore anything and anyone. The message of the Bible is that God doesn't concede the earth to the enemy. The message of the Bible is that God takes back the earth from the enemy. That's the message of Scripture. George Eldon Ladd says it this way, The Bible always places men and women on a redeemed earth, not a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. It's this heaven and earth become one like a bride and a groom on their wedding day. Now think about that. All of the beauty of this life with none of the brokenness that brings so much hurt and pain. All the things that we love about this world and this life without all the brokenness, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more regrets, because God is making all things new, Revelation says. 
that the former things, all of the former things, the failures, the pain, the hurts, the losses, the stupid decisions, all of that will be remembered no more. And you will no longer carry the weight of those things. And you will no longer carry the heartache of those things. Feeling like you're not enough, right? Gone. Feeling like you don't have enough, gone. Experiencing shame because of Something that you've done or something that someone has done to you, gone. All of that, gone. Gossip, finding out that people are tearing you down behind your back, gone. Cancer, gone. Alzheimer's, gone. Heart attacks, gone. COVID, gone. All of that, gone. The devastating loss of a wife or a husband or a parent or a child, gone. All of that gone. Think about this. This is not, this isn't just about sitting around on a cloud playing a harp. Like, I think the reason that sometimes we don't get that excited about heaven, like we get motivated to say, I don't want to be lost. I don't want to spend eternity separated from God. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want that. But sometimes we don't get so excited about heaven and about what this is all about because we just have this image that we got in Sunday school of floating around on some cloud, some ethereal spirit playing a harp, and we go, no, I want to play baseball. Like, it's like, no, I'm not really excited about that. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's better than like awful separation with God, but no, that doesn't get me going. This is all about the things we love about life without the brokenness. This is about love and laughter and good food and good drink and table fellowship and incredible relationships and the beauty of the oceans and the beauty of the mountains and meaningful labor and creative new expressions of music and art and new adventures that stretch the mind and Ignite the spirit and fill the heart with joy, all without the brokenness of sin. That is what it means when heaven and earth become one. Can I get an amen for that? And then you get to chapter 22. Last book of Revelation, or last chapter of Revelation, last chapter of in the Bible, the final like communication of the narrative of God's story. And John in chapter 22 reminds us of the best part. Like all the stuff that I've been talking about, that's awesome, that's great, all the things we experience. Then John describes the best part of heaven and earth becoming one. And this is what he says. And they will see they, that's us, those in Christ, and they will see his, that's God, Father, and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Think about that. For those who are in Christ, we get to see God face to face. Paul says we see through a, we see through a glass like dimly now. Like we see God, but we don't see God face to face. Moses saw God, but Moses couldn't even see God face to face. He had to cover his eyes. He had to turn his back. Couldn't stand to actually be in the holy presence of God. But when heaven and earth become one, we get to see God face to face. Think about that. After all of our failures, right? After all of your failures, 
after all of your brokenness, after all of the, the, the stupid decisions that you've made, that I've made, that has broken the heart of God, after all of that, we get to look in the face of the one who loved us so much that he was willing to die for us rather than, than live separated from us. And according to the proclamation of Scripture, like when we see God face to face, even after all of our failures and all of our brokenness and all the ways in which we have, you know, done things that have broken our like even after all of that, that in Christ, Scripture says that when we see God face to face, that there will be no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There will be no lectures that there will be no rehashing of past failures. There will be no eye rolls. There will be none of that, right? Because the old order of things has passed away. It's remembered no more. Jesus has made all things new. Now, here's the amazing thing. You get to near the end of the last chapter of the last book in Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And after describing, you know, where history is rushing to and, and what it's going to be like when heaven and earth become one, and after describing all of this about the future, everything, like after all that, this is what, this is what John says, verse 17, the spirit and the bride. Remember, he's talking to real people. They're living, you know, right at that time. He's talking to us. They're going through Whatever it is that we go through, all the struggles, all that kind of stuff, he's talking, and this is what he says. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Think about that. This is an invitation to two things. First of all, this is an invitation to secure your future, right? This future that John is describing isn't our future unless we drink of the water of life. Like this isn't everyone's future. This is the future for those who have drank the water of life. Like unless we're willing to repent of our sins, unless we're willing to confess, unless we're willing to accept God's forgiveness and his grace and what he's done for us on the cross and this incredible sacrifice that he's made for us, like unless we're willing to do that, like we, this is not a future that's everyone's future. This is a future for those who have said yes. This is a future for those who have drank the water, the free water of, of life. And John says, so come, drink the water. Like, secure your future. Settle your destiny. Don't live with the uncertainty of like what your future is gonna be and where all this is headed and what part you'll have. Like, no, no, no. He's saying, no, no, settle it. Settle your future. Settle your destiny. You know, um, Kayla, in the announcements, she was mentioning, in fact, we got baptisms coming up. And uh, it's three weeks from now, right? Three weeks, people are gonna get into the baptismal pool and they're going to, to go down into the water 
symbolizing this, right? The death to our old sinful self and new life, the drinking of the water of life, the forgiveness and grace, the new beginning, the new song, the new whatever you wanna describe it like. People are gonna be declaring that. And I, I just, just some of you, I just, I just wanna say like, some of you just need to, it's three weeks away, right? And some of you, like you're here, you're watching online, you're connected, all of that, but you just need to, you need to settle some things with God. You just need to settle some things with God. You need to confess, you need to repent, you need to accept his forgiveness, his grace, his love. And then you need to, three weeks from now, you need to get in that baptismal pool and you just need to declare it. Just declare that your future in Christ is secure, that you are a new person in Jesus, that, that even though you know all the things that have gone on before, like God has made you new. And that's the invitation that's here. And that's the invitation that Jesus offers to you. Like, come, drink this water of life that Jesus offers. But this is not just an invitation to secure your future. It's also an invitation to live your future now. That's what's so awesome about the book of Revelation is it doesn't just give us the pathway to secure our future. It's constantly reminding us how we can live our future now. That this water of life that Jesus is offering is not just something that you can drink in the future when heaven and earth become one. It's something that can quench your thirst right now. God's kingdom can come and his will can be done in your life right now. Like that was Jesus' prayer. Like this Lord's prayer that we have kind of focused on and talked about, and that's part of the prayer where Jesus says, here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray that God's kingdom would come, that God's will would be done on earth in you just as it is in heaven. You know what that prayer is all about? Live your future now. Like you don't have to wait for this marvelous, incredible time when heaven and earth become one. You can live your future now. You can sing a new song now. You can walk in the forgiveness and grace and the obedience and the holiness to God now. Like you can do that right now. So let me just end this whole series. And I've loved this series. I've loved preaching Revelation. I hope it's been helpful. Love the book. Love the message of the book. I kind of would like to just... Uh, But we've got to move on. But uh, I've, loved, I've loved being able to preach this. But let me just end this whole thing by just asking you this question. Just like, where are you right now? Like right now, where are you? Do you need to secure your future? Like if you were to be truly honest and say, you know what? Um, I'm just not certain. I'm just not sure really where I stand with God and my future future, and I just want to settle that. I want to secure my future. I want to settle my destiny. And maybe, you know, today is the day to do that, just to say, God, I, I believe what you've done for me on the cross. I believe that you have forgiven my sins. I repent of where I've messed up and screwed up and done things that I know were not pleasing to you, and I, I just want to give all that to you and I just wanna start fresh, and I just wanna start new. And I just wanna, I just wanna secure my future too, just like I don't, I don't wanna 
have uncertainty about that. Or maybe you've already secured your future. Like you've prayed the prayer, you've accepted Christ as your savior. You know if you died today that you'd spend eternity with God in heaven. You know that when heaven and earth becomes one that you will be there, part of the saints that are made new and resurrected. Like you know all of that. It's not about securing your future, it's about living your future now. It's about living out the prayer of Jesus that God's will would be done in your life right now. That God's kingdom would come right now in the way that you handle your relationships in the way that you handle your resources and the way that you handle your sexuality and the way that you handle your decisions and the way that you handle everything that God's will would be done you would live in obedience to God, that you would live out the holiness of God, that God's kingdom would come. And today, what God is just saying is, hey, your future is secure. You love me. You've accepted me. I just want you to live this future that's coming, that's yours, that's your inheritance. I just want you to live that future right now, right here in your marriage, in your life, in your relationships. God, we give you thanks for the story of God, the sweeping story of God that we read in your word. We give you thanks, Lord, that we know that all history is rushing to you and finds its fulfillment in you. We give you thanks that there is coming a day when heaven and earth become one like a bride and a groom on their wedding day. We give you thanks, Lord, for the inheritance that is ours as followers of Jesus. And now, Lord, I just, I pray for two groups. Maybe, maybe they're in the room, maybe they're watching online, maybe they're out in the great room, wherever they are. I pray for those who need to secure their future in you, that need to accept your forgiveness and your grace and begin this journey. Lord, I pray that they can make a simple decision, a prayer, a simple prayer. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for paying for my sins. Thank you for giving me life. Thank you for securing a future. Thank you for giving me purpose now. And I just say yes. And Lord, for those that are here that perhaps have prayed that prayer, but are really just not living out that future now, I pray that they could Pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life right now, just as it is in heaven. Let me, let me sing. Let my life be a song. Let me sing the new song that is mine in Jesus. Let me walk in your obedience and walk in your holiness. Walk in who you are. In the name of Christ, we pray.
Let's stand together and worship.